the last week we talked about this question who do you say Jesus is and I told you guys that I didn't I don't like being melodramatic and I don't like being over sensational but I was pretty doggone comfortable saying or telling you guys that this is the most important question that you will ever answer in your lifetimes who is Jesus who do you say that Jesus is and we looked at this piece of scripture from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus asked his disciples the exact same question. And surprisingly, as far as we know anyway, Peter was the only one who got the question right. He was the only one that correctly identified Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And uh, this was kind of surprising because at the time that Christ actually asked the disciples this question, they had already been traveling around with Jesus for about 18 months. So, you know, you would think that they would have known who he was by then. However, a lot of Christians, and of course a lot of non-believers today, we still don't know who Jesus is. Some say that he was a prophet, some say that he was a really great person and a really great moral teacher, but that he was just a man. Somebody, uh, some say that he was certainly not God's only begotten son. And of course, like we talked about last week, there's still some who say that Jesus was a myth, that he was a fairy tale. So what we did last week is we looked at some of those arguments that people present through the lens of historical facts through the lens of some scientific evidence and through the lens of uh, some pretty incredible life-changing, life-transforming testimonies from some pretty <coughs> notable people, some pretty famous people who, were, who had these life-changing experiences with Christ who happened to be former atheists. And we concluded by talking about the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is one of the oldest creeds or one of the oldest statements of belief in the history of the church. And uh, it states in no uncertain terms what we believe as Christians. And we, re we repeated that this morning as we do most Sunday mornings. This is what we believe about Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, then he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Y'all should be happy to know that I did that from memory this time. Yes. But that's who we believe Jesus is. That, that's the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our belief system. So interestingly, uh, this is what happens in this story next. Jesus asked the disciples, you know, who do you say that I am? Um, and they, they gave a couple of uh, wrong answers, and Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And uh, Jesus, right after that, Jesus basically affirms what Peter just said. Uh, yeah, I am, you know, I, I am what you said, Peter. You got it right, basically. But what he says after this is pretty neat because he drops this bomb on the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And then he drops this bomb in Luke 9, 23 and 24. And it just reads this. After all this transpired, Jesus said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's the word of God for the people of God. You may not think that that's, uh, that that's much of a bomb, but I want to talk to you about this for a second. Let's put these two ideas together. Let's put these two statements, these two sayings that Jesus gives us together from what we talked about last week, that he's the son of God, to what we're talking about this week. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. Who do you say I am? Here's the first idea. Who do you say I am? What do you believe about? Okay, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Right, you got it right, Peter. So now that your belief system is in the right place, now that you know who I am, now that you know what I am, 
here's what it means to be my follower. Here's what it means to be my disciples. Deny yourselves, take up your cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus, to claim Jesus as our Lord, to put into action and to put into practice requires our complete and sold-out allegiance to Jesus. And to do that is the way of the cross. It is to follow the way of the cross of Christ because the cross signifies everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus was, taking up our crosses, denying ourselves, and following him. If you were ever in academic or theological circles, you might hear this sometimes referred to as cruciform theology or leading a cruciform life. Now, that's just a big term that basically means this. Cruciform is, simply means cross-shaped. Um, so to speak of living a cruciform life basically means to take the posture of Jesus through a lifestyle of what? Through a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. That's the way of the cross. And Jesus completely embodied this cruciform lifestyle, his entire life leading up to and ultimately resulting in his death was completely one of self-sacrificial love. He lived patiently to give of himself for the sake of other people. It's something that we most clearly see, of course, on the cross as he gave up his own life for the love of humanity. The Apostle Paul points us towards this same life in the book of Philippians. Uh, for those who were here last Wednesday or, or in our Bible study, we actually went over this, we actually went over this scripture. Um, but in the book of Philippians, Paul, Paul, Paul kind of sums this up for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul writes, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality God some, with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Rather, he made himself nothing. He died to himself. He denied himself. How did he do that? By taking the very nature of a servant. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I don't think that we, you know, we, we, we have, many of us have read this scripture many, many, many times. And sometimes when we, when we approach a familiar scripture, you all have heard me say this before, it kind of loses its power sometimes. It kind of it, it, it fails to touch us in the way that it used to touch us at some point. We need to relook at this scripture and similar scriptures like this. What is this really calling us to? Because this is a pretty doggone big task that Paul is talking about. This is a pretty doggone big task that Jesus is talking about when he starts talking about denying ourselves, following him daily, and taking up our crosses. This is our challenge, though, church. This is our call, and if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, there is absolutely no sidestep in this. Something we love to do, but in reality we can't. Not if we're legitimately going to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. But let's go just a little bit beneath that. Let's go just a little bit beneath the surface of this whole idea. What does it really mean to deny ourselves? What's it really mean to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus Christ with complete allegiance? I want to point you real quick, and we're not going to look up these scriptures because that would take a lot of time, but I want to point you to three different examples of what this looks like. Taking up our cross, following Jesus, being self-giving. Self I want to point you to three examples, three instances in scripture where Jesus invites 
other people to join him. And I want you to think about their responses. Here's the first, here's the first one. A little bit further down from this scripture in Luke 9, uh, verse 57. An unknown man, we don't know who this guy is, but this unknown person comes up to Jesus and he tells him, he says, I will follow you everywhere that you go. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Here's how Jesus responds to him. <clears throat> Jesus says, foxes have, now this is probably going to blow your mind, it's probably going to make no sense when you first hear it. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus' responds to the man by saying, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, why would Jesus respond to this guy in this weird, cryptic way, right? Well, we know that Jesus taught in parables for one thing, so this is kind of like a parable. Uh, in other words, what Christ is saying is consider what you're doing. Consider first what you are committing to. Do you really, really know what you're signing up for? Because this is what it looks like to be one of my followers. Considering what you're going to have, consider what you're going to have to give up. Jesus is literally telling this guy. Let me repeat that sentence that Jesus tells you, or tells that guy. God says, "I'll follow you wherever you go." Jesus responds by saying, "Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head." Jesus is literally telling this guy that he is homeless. That's the response there. I am homeless. This is what it's going to take when you decide to become one of my disciples. Right now. Right here in this moment. Jesus is telling this guy, you're homeless. Are you willing to be homeless, mister? He's asking this guy, are you willing to be homeless? What about us? Are we willing to give up our comforts? Are we willing to give up our comforts? Because authentically following Jesus is going to require a radical reorientation of our priorities what is most important to us is it Christ is it being his disciples or is it something else if you want me to be totally honest with you church these are questions that I struggle with myself here's just a few things you might want to consider what do I spend my money on do I spend it on entertainment do I spend it on the newest iPhone or the newest technological gadget bigger television, a bigger house, brand name clothes, brand name accessories? Am I giving what I owe back to God or am I hoarding it for other purposes? How much is enough for me? Where are my priorities? And now I'm getting into money and I'm getting into materialism, but it's the same concept. Our own John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was adamant in preaching against the hoarding of wealth preaching against materialism, and preaching against consumerism, all major things that threaten the holiness and the vitality of the church. And that was 300 years ago. What does it look like now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture to guess it's a lot worse. He observed that back in the year 1786 when he wrote these words. Now remember, this is 300-year-old language, so it's going to be a little different. But he wrote this in 1786. He said, the Methodist in every place continue to increase in goods. In other words, the people that are following this Methodist movement, they're starting, they're starting to acquire some wealth. Okay, They're starting to acquire a little bit of money. The Methodists in every place continue to increase in goods. Consequently, they proportionately increase in pride, in anger, in the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So although the form of their religion remains, the spirit is swiftly vanishing away. That's how seriously our own John Wesley talked about materialism and consumerism and the dangers that it has. 
to our spiritual lives, both individually and communally, as local churches and as the larger church body. Here's another piece of advice that Wesley gave around the same time. He said, save all that you can by cutting off every expense which serves only to indulge your foolish, your foolish desire, those that gratify either the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. Waste nothing, and then give all that you can, or in other words, give all that you have to God. How's our checkbooks? How are we operating monetarily, financially? What do, our, do our lives reflect those who are reflect those who are authentically following Christ in this area? Or are we more concerned, guided by consumerism, materialism, those types of pursuits? You might be interested to learn this cute little fact here. Christians are not that much different from non-Christians in this particular area. Even though we have taught the biblical principle of tithing since forever, even though we have taught the biblical principle of giving to the poor, American Christians fall right in line with non-believers, giving up about 2.2% of their income for religious or charitable purposes. Let me say that again. Christians are not much different than non-Christians, not in the United States anyway, when it comes to charitable giving and purposes. 2.2% of disposable income pretty much the national average, and it's evenly distributed between Christians and non-Christians. So there's the first example. The second instance I want to point out comes immediately after, in the Bible, comes immediately after the first one that I mentioned. And in this case, it's another, it's another unnamed man uh, that Jesus calls to follow him. And the man replies this. He says, Lord, he says, first, let me go and bury my father. Some of y'all are very familiar with this part of the scripture. This sounds kind of harsh. On the, on the part of Christ. The guy says, hey man, I'll follow you. Let me go take care of my dying father first. This is Jesus' response. He says, let the, bury, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and you proclaim the kingdom of God. Now before you start thinking that Christ is being really, really mean and awful here, let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of cultural context, because it does seem extremely harsh on the surface. But the fact is, during this time, the Jewish practice of burial could last anywhere from 12 months to two years. And given that lack of information in the text, we don't really even know that this guy's father had, had died yet. We don't know if, he, if he's actually uh, was dead at this point because um, the Bible doesn't say that. In that case, the cultural expectation would have been for the oldest son to take responsibility for his dying father, to take care of him, and then, of course, to see him through the entire burial process. Again, 12, to, 12 months to two years, regardless of, whatever, regardless of the actual situation. Regardless of these two possibilities, Jesus is challenging the priority that we place on our relationships when they come in conflict with acting on God's will. Let me say that one more time. The moral of this story, the purpose of this story, basically, is that Jesus is challenging the priority that we place on our relationships when they come in conflict on, in acting on God's will. Or to put it another, another way, putting off for tomorrow what God is clearly calling us to do and to be today. We actually talked about relationships a few weeks ago. No, Jesus doesn't literally want us to be unconcerned about our families and those closest to us. He is saying, though, that our love and our allegiance to him must supersede and must take precedence over all of these. 
And I told you there was a benefit to that. I don't know if for those that were here, y'all probably remember this. I told you there's a benefit to putting our relationship with Christ ahead of our relationships with others. I told you, if Christ was not my first priority in my life, I would be probably a horrible father. I would probably be a horrible husband. I certainly would not be a decent pastor. Christ comes first, and everything else flows from that. That's the, that's the benefit that we get from that. So yes, Christ comes first. But also Christ calls us to follow him immediately. Don't put off for tomorrow what I'm calling you to do today. It requires an immediate response, no hesitation, no second-guessing, no justifying. In the third instance, this last instance I'm going to tell you about, Jesus calls another unnamed man to follow him. And this guy says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Similar to the second instance. But here's Christ's response on that one. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Man, this Jesus guy is harsh. But I want you to do something. Think about this. Think about those three instances that I just gave you where Christ calls people, and, and, but there's always a little hiccup there, right? There's always a little hiccup. Think about those and compare them to some other people that we know about in the Bible, some other Jesus followers that we know about from Holy Scripture. Think about that guy named Peter. Think about that guy named Andrew. Think about that guy named Matthew. The Bible tells us that when Jesus said, follow him, those guys immediately stopped what it was that they were doing. Some a couple of them were in the process of working. They stopped, they just stopped. Literally dropped everything that they were doing. And they followed Jesus from that point forward. Think about the y'all remember the story when we were kids about Zacchaeus in the tree? <coughs> remember that story? Zacchaeus came down immediately from that tree at the behest of Jesus. After that, Zacchaeus repents of his sins. He, uh, he uh, says he's going to give, I think, four. He was a tax collector and cheated a lot of people out of money. I think he said, I'm going to, he, he, he vowed that he was going to give four times the amount to every person that he had cheated. He was going to give that back to them. Compare those responses to the responses that I gave you earlier here in the sermon. What's the difference here? What's the difference in those instances where I've named and the responses of Peter, Andrew, Matthew, Zacchaeus? Those unknown three men were volunteers. I'll explain that in a second. Those unknown three men were volunteers. They were not servants. The unknown men were indecisive unknown men were unsure the others Peter, Andrew, Matthew Zacchaeus they took up their crosses and they followed Christ and they gave of themselves that's the question we got to ask ourselves are we volunteers for Christ when it's convenient or are we servants of Christ because that's what he calls us to I've mentioned over the last several weeks, an author and another United Methodist pastor named Mike Slaughter, he, he wrote about this topic as well. Here's, here's what he wrote. And here's, here's the difference between volunteers and servants, as Christ calls us to be, self-giving, those who take up their crosses. <coughs> pastor Slaughter writes this. He says, volunteers serve out of the convenience of their calendars, controlling when, where, and how they participate. Volunteers will say things like, I'll be there as long as I have the time, as long as it's not too convenient. 
and as long as it doesn't conflict with my pressing priorities. Volunteers follow Jesus up to a specific point, and that point is where it interferes with their lifestyles. Are we volunteers for Christ when it's convenient, when we want to, or are we servants of Christ who respond immediately upon his call? Jesus isn't looking for volunteers, church. He's not looking for nominal, half-committed, half-hearted followers. He's looking for servants. He's looking for cross-bearers, and he is looking for self-deniers. That's the way of the cross. That's the lifestyle we're called to. That is what it means to live a cruciform lifestyle that mimics the heart and the behavior and the lifestyle and the relationships of Jesus Christ. 